Now, in light of Ritterboss's comments on Colossians especially, and in light of the earlier quotations where Van Til quotes the entire section of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I want to turn our attention to just verses 15 through 16 and 18 to further amplify the pre-existence and the post-existence of Jesus Christ in light of this text. My comments are not aimed at being extensive or exhaustive here, but we're trying to target the biblical foundations for these categories that we just summarized from Ritterboss, trying to look now at something of an exegetical support. The text of Colossians 1.15 through 20 uh, is structured in terms of a literary arrangement. Uh, the passage is arranged in terms of two strophes with a transition midway through. And I'll just put the structure up in front of you. Uh, strophe 1 is verses 15 through 16 that focuses on the pre-existence of the Son as we've just defined from Ritterboss. Um, the transition is from uh, verses 17 through 18a, and then strophe 2 is from verses um, 18b through 20. Now, maybe in another course, one of these days, we'll do an extensive treatment of the Greek text here, but I'm just putting this up to give you a sense. The strophe 2 deals with the post existence of the Son. Now, for those of you who are interested, I'm not going to develop this in detail, but um, in the transition, verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's a restatement of the theological substance of the first strophe, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, heaven and earth, all things are from him and for him. 18a is a synoptic expression and summation, uh, a synopsis of the second stroke. He is the head of the church, and as such, what? He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the one in whom all the fullness dwells. By the blood of his cross, he has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. The preexistence is the relation of the Son to deity and to the Father. The post-existence of the Son is the relation of the Son to the new creation and to his church in particular. And so when you're looking at the structure of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the text that we've already seen Van Til quotes in its entirety, and a text that Ritterboss treats extensively, I would say kind of programmatically in the fundamental structures of Paul, this is the literary structure. And the literary structure serves the theological meaning. So what we had on the board earlier, the previous module, I'm now restating in terms of baseline pre-existence, Colossians 1.15a, image of God, 15b, firstborn over all creation, and post-existence, 
summarized by firstborn from among the dead. And so these two categories, pre-existence and post-existence, grow directly out of the literary structure and the theology of this portion of Scripture. And so when you think about the literary structure, a mini-thesis here is that the literary structure serves the theological message, serves the confession of the Son in his pre-existence, serves the confession of the Son in his post-existence. Now, let me turn to uh, some of the, the treatments that you find of this, and I, I want to give you a very quick summary of Colossians 1.15 uh, and, and uh, 115a and 115b from the work of Herman Bavink. Now, if you've heard my lecture from the Reform Forum Conference on perichoresis, incoronation, and ascension, Christology in the light of indoxation, this is a compressed uh, summary of a small portion of that lecture, but I include it here because I find it of great theological value. Herman Ritterboss, when he's commenting on pre-existence, introduces, he's commenting on Colossians 115a and 115b through 16, he introduces a beautiful uh, distinction when we speak of the pre-existence of the Son. We can speak of the pre-existence of the Son in two distinct ways. On the one side, we can speak of his pre-existence in his relation to the Father, 15a. And on the other side, we can speak of his pre-existence in relation to creation. As image of God, he is related essentially and absolutely to the Father and by implication to the Spirit. As firstborn over all creation, he is related to creation as the Creator is related to the creature. And so, just to survey this uh, and give you a feel for this, this is important. You need biblical foundations for these categories. Uh, this denotes, I'm going to put it up here in advance and then explain it, image of God denotes what we will call a processional relation in the Godhead, a processional relation to the Father. Firstborn over all creation, verse 15b, brings into view the, and, and I'm using Voss's language from RD 1, 178, a quote-unquote new relation to creation, both of which bring out diverse aspects of the Son's preexistence. He exists eternally and necessarily in a processional relation to the Father, we call eternal generation. And he exists freely and sovereignly in a new relation to creation as the firstborn over all creation, the one by whom all things were made. And just to tease that out, let me give you a few quotations from uh, Bavink. Uh, not to risk too much redundancy with my lecture uh, from the Reform Forum Conference, but Bavink says that this language, image of God in Colossians 1.15, what's in our first strophe here about his preexistence, 
He says that this language refers to the Son as the image of God in an absolute sense. And he goes on to say, before his incarnation as Logos and Son, he existed in the form of God, was rich, clothed with glory. Thus he was then and is now the image of the invisible God, the reflection of his glory and the, quote, very stamp of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. That's Bavink's uh, statement, and if you're interested in that, uh, Bavink, R.D. 2.279. Very much worth your time. Uh, very, very useful. The first point to grasp, and the most basic one, is that image applies to the eternal Son of God in an absolute sense and denotes a processional relation of personal existence as the only begotten Son of God. Image of God, to put it in a way that brings us, harkens back to Coleman and Bart in Ritterboss's point, image of God, Bavink says, does not refer to eternal humanity. We have to banish that from our minds forever. It's not an eternal God-man. It's not eternal humanity. It's not eternal incarnation. Before Jesus, in calendar time, assumed the human image, he was the underived, uncreated image of the invisible God in an absolute sense. And so... It is a processional relation of eternal generation that this term image of God denotes. Now, what, what does that mean for our understanding of his preexistence? Well, you can put it this way. He is, in his preexistence, Bavink's language from Hebrews 1.3, the very stamp of the divine essence, the very image of the invisible God. To use a little bit more dogmatic language that might help, image brings into view a personal distinction from the Father, monogenes, begetting. The, the Son as image is personally and eternally distinguished from the Father in a processional relation. And so this Processional relation brings into view the Son as only begotten, monogamous. Yet, at the same time, image brings into view essential identity with the Father. The Son as begotten is God of himself, to use Calvin's language. He is homoousios with the Father. His deity is not derived from the Father. His deity is not dependent on the Father. His deity is not derived or sustained by another person in the Godhead. He is essentially ase, essentially the simple God. So essential identity follows from homoousios. Personal distinction follows from monogamous. And Bavink says then, to summarize it, as the full or absolute image of God, 
He from all eternity sustained, listen, an utterly unique relation to the Father. So we're parsing pre-existence finely here, but this is, this image of God in processional relation, this is a relation ad intra. This is a relation that terminates in God, not outside of God. It's a processional relation ad intra, in God. Prior to and apart from a relation to creation, the eternal Son of God in the processional relation to the Father is the image of God in the absolute sense. Secondly, Bavink focuses on this language, firstborn, prototokos in the Greek, firstborn over all creation. And he says this, as such, I know that's a little bit uh, out of context, as such what? As the image of the invisible God, monogenes, homoousios, as that person, he is the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.15b, Revelation 1.16-18, in whom all things were created. Firstborn is in comparison with every creature and must be understood, listen, as existing before every creature. Do you hear how clear the pre-existence is there? The expression firstborn, Bavink goes on to say, does not include Christ in the category of creatures, but excludes him from it. Boy, isn't that clear. You can tell Bavink's a dogmatician. He's saying no to Bart, no to covenantal properties, no to Coleman, no to eternalized humanity. Firstborn is not first among creatures. It doesn't include him in creatures. It excludes him. Being the firstborn, continuing the quote, and only begotten as son and as logos and as the full image of God, he from all eternity sustained an utter, utterly unique relation to the Father. So he, he goes on to say, verse 16 qualifies firstborn unambiguously with the reference to the one by whom or in whom. There's a little bit of an exegetical issue there. I'm going to go with by whom. By whose personal agency all things were created. So as the firstborn over every creature, he is the one by whom all things were made. This is actually an important point to note. I'm not going to develop for this course, but verse 16 teaches the active personal agency of the Son of God in creation. He is firstborn, listen, as he sovereignly, freely, and personally creates all things ex nihilo, things in heaven, things on earth, things invisible, and things visible, our little chiasm. Verse 16d says this, all things are by him, verse 16b, verse 16d says all things are through him and to him. So creation is both by and through the Son and for the Son. They exist for him. 
They exist to worship him. They exist to honor him. They exist to serve him. This elaborates now, Bavink. Bavink elaborates on the point we made earlier from Ritterboss about the pre-existence of the Son, but he brings into view this distinction. Image of God, a processional relation ad intra, firstborn over creation, a new relation to creation. It is ad extra. The work of the Son as firstborn terminates, listen, outside of the Godhead, as he is the one by whom all things were made. Now, just in light of this, Hermann Ritterboss, okay, so we're leaving Bavink. There's the basic Bavink. We're finished with Bavink, moving back to Ritterboss to look at the way Ritterboss develops this. Now, what Ritterboss says about Colossians 115a, and especially now that we're thinking more precisely, more narrowly, more crisply, especially now about 15b through 16, Ritterboss says we have before us, quote, a Christological interpretation of Genesis 1. Why? Well, in verses 15b through 16, as the firstborn over all creation, the eternal Son is the one by whom all things in heaven and earth, invisible and visible, were created. I've put it this way in various classes that I've taught before, various lectures I've given, but 1.16, Colossians 1.16, is an inspired apostolic commentary on Genesis 1.1. The heavens are the invisible heavens, the earth are the visible earth. In the absolute beginning, the Son of God freely and sovereignly created all things. And so Ritterboss says this is a Christological interpretation of Genesis 1, or an interpretation of Genesis 1-1 with a Christological starting point. The, the uh, be viewing Genesis 1-1 from the standpoint of the eternal person of the Son as image of God and firstborn over all creation. But then he notes something that's very profound. And it's going to move us in the direction of a triangle that represents something of the theology that we find here. Ritterboss says, that you find something fascinating when you look at Colossians 1.15a in contrast and comparison to Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.7. So I'm going to start a triangle uh, relationship here. It's going to have to be smaller than I'm accustomed to, to drawing it. Um, and I'm not going to talk about the uh, far side of the triangle over here to, uh, to my right as I'm looking at it. But in Colossians 1.15, you have the pre-existent image, right? The pre-existent image, Colossians 1.15. In um, Genesis 
1, 27, and Genesis 2, 7, you have the created image. And if you look at Genesis 2, 7 and the order of the movement of created image bearers, you can see that being first, appearing first in Adam as the created image. And so Ritterboss says, just as we've said earlier, he says, when it comes to Colossians 1.15, the expression image of God is clearly rooted in Genesis 1.27. So, since we've already done this, you're, you're kind of a pro at this by now, having worked through the previous lecture. Paul does what? Paul describes, now please get this, Paul describes the processional relation of eternal generation, the pre-existent image in Colossians 1.15a, in language and categories borrowed directly from the created image of God in Genesis 1.27 and by good and necessary consequence, Genesis 2.7. Language of image used directly in 127, indirectly in 27. And he notes something profound when speaking about the relationship between Adam and the Son. We could say something along these lines that the relationship between the pre existent image and the created image is one of, we'll call it, replication. There's a replication of the image that is the pre-existent Son of God in the creation of Adam as the first image-bearing Son of God. Colossians 1.15 supplies something unique regarding that image. Let me use uh, let me just uh, borrow briefly from Bavink. The language of, well, I'm going to adjust the language from Bavink. How about that? The ectypal image is the created image. The archetypal or absolute image is the uncreated image. Ritterboss notes that Paul denotes the archetypal or absolute image in this processional relation with language and categories borrowed from the ectypal created image, namely Adam, Genesis 2-7, Adam and Eve, image of God, Genesis 1-27. And so... Adam images the triune God to be sure. Colossians 3.10 makes that clear. Ephesians 4.24 makes that clear. But with that being said, Adam is created as the image of the triune God. There is also, according to Colossians 1.15a, an analogical relation between the processional relation of personal origin between the Father and the Son on the one side, 
and the image endowment and the natural religious fellowship with Adam as the created image of God on the other side. And so this relationship is a relationship Ritterboss says deserves a good deal of attention, and we need to give attention to it. And so as we continue to move forward, the first thing to note here and the thing to reflect on is precisely what we saw about post-existence. What did we say before? Paul describes the pre-existence of the Son in light of his post-existence as the last Adam. But in Colossians 1.15, what does he also do? He describes the glory of the pre-existent Son of God as image in language and categories that derive from the first Adam as created, even though Adam is an ectype image bearer of the triune God. This is the first strand, the first line of reflection that Ritterboss develops in his Christological interpretation of Genesis 1.1. Now Ritterboss makes an additional statement. Having mapped out the relationship between the pre-existent image that's archetypal and absolute, pre-existent son, the first Adam, the created image, the ectype of the triune God, uh, and also analogically representing that processional relation as image, Ritterboss makes an additional point about the post-existence of the Son. In light of texts such as 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 47 and Romans 5, 12 through 19. Now what comes into view in terms of these coordinates? We'll say there's the A of pre-existence, B of original image endowment, and the C of post-existence. This is similar to Voss's triangle in his work on the teaching of the Epistle of Hebrews, except we're using it to describe Christology. There is a line of historical anticipation as you move from the first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45, the first man, 1 Corinthians 15.47, to the last Adam, And second man, verse 45b and verse 47b of 1 Corinthians 15. So as you're thinking in terms of the relationship between Adam as the image of God and the post-existence of the Son as glorified, here's the relationship that starts to emerge. Colossians 1.15 presents the pre-existent son as prior to the first Adam. Coloss um, 1 Corinthians 15.45 and 47 and Romans uh, 5.12 through 19 presents Jesus in his post-existence as subsequent to the first Adam. He is the last Adam, 45b. He is the second man. 47b. 
So Ritter Boss says that there's something quite profound when you triangulate Colossians 1.15, Genesis 1.27 and 2.7, and 1 Corinthians 15.45 and Romans 5. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, the post-existent son follows Adam as last and second. Whereas in Colossians 1, he precedes Adam as first. Here's the quote. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, Christ is the second or last Adam who follows after the first in the order of redemptive history. In Colossians 1.15, he is the firstborn, the image of God. He is antecedent to the first. The Son of God in his pre-existence precedes the first Adam. The Son of God in his post-existence follows after the last Adam. And these relations are contained here in this chart, the A, B, C's of redemptive historical Christology, moving from pre-existence to post-existence. Now, let me make just a couple of concluding and summarizing comments about post-existence. We haven't said much, but I want this material from Colossians 1.18b to be directly supplemental from the, for the, of the material that we covered from 1 Corinthians 15.45 and from Voss in his Pauline eschatology. Verse 18b speaks of Jesus Christ in his post-existence as firstborn from among the dead. And in terms of these strophes, strophe 1, verses 15 through 16, strophe 2, 18b through 20, there are a number of recurring terms and phrases, one of which is the Son is prototokos, firstborn over all creation in his preexistence, prototokos, firstborn from among the dead and preeminent in his post-existence. The firstborn status in pre-existence finds its redemptive historical expression in firstborn status as raised and ascended. And as firstborn from among the dead, I want to say two things about that just to give us a sense of the Christology Ritterboss summarizes. He is first in his rank and dignity as a divine person raised from the dead. He is first in the dignity of his person. Why? Because he's first born in the dignity of his person, right? Firstborn over all created things, excluded from the creature. That eternal person, that divine person, is the firstborn from among the dead as incarnate. He is preeminent. Second, he joins his status. He joins his status as resurrected to those for whom he was raised as firstborn. So there is preeminence and there is solidarity. And that's what I'm going to comment just briefly. There is preeminence. That doesn't look like preeminence. It is. Let me, let me try that one more time. There is preeminence 
and there is solidarity. Preeminence as firstborn, solidarity as firstborn. Let me talk to you first about preeminence just briefly. As the firstborn from among the dead, Colossians 18b says he is RK. He is the beginning. The beginning in view in Colossians 1.18 is not the beginning of the original creation, but the beginning of the new creation. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new creation dawns. A new beginning dawns. And this new beginning is just as comprehensive as the original beginning in Genesis 1-1 with this major difference. The beginning of Genesis 1-1 is a sub-eschatological world. It is a world that was originally, in Genesis 1-2, a tohu vavohu, a formless void that in the space of six days was ordered and filled. But the beginning that coincides with Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the resurrection of an eschatological world of glory. Jesus rises and cannot perish. He rises as the one who is clothed in the power of an indestructible life. In his resurrected state, he has vanquished sin. In his resurrected state, he is beyond probation and in full possession of resurrection life. This beginning vastly supersedes the beginning of Genesis 1-1. And the good news of the gospel is we begin in Christ as raised, not Adam as created. We begin beyond probation, not under probation. We begin in resurrection life, which cannot be taken from us. It is this beginning that Christ inaugurates as firstborn. And he is as such preeminent in that. In fact, Paul says Christ as firstborn from the dead simply means that he has been raised as preeminent in all things. The one who is eternally preeminent in his preexistence becomes forever preeminent in his post-existence. Not that he lacked preeminence prior, but that in his status as raised from the dead, never to die again, he is forever preeminent in all things. And there's no qualification. The resurrection marks a movement from the mode of earthly humiliation to heavenly exaltation that climaxes in ascension and session at the right hand of God, and he is this for his body, the church. And so it's critical to recognize that from one standpoint, the preeminence that the Son of God comes to enjoy in his post-existence is an organic extension that expresses in redemptive historical categories the preeminence he always enjoyed as the preexistent one. That is the mystery of the dignity of his one eternal, immutable person. But there's solidarity also, and I just need to say this. 
When you're thinking about Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead, yes, it marks out his preeminence in all things. Yes, he is the beginning. Yes, he is the Lord. Yes, as firstborn, he is the firstborn over all creation. As firstborn from among the dead. But also, he is the firstborn from among the dead that two images bring out beautifully. First, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he is the first fruits of one great resurrection harvest. As firstborn from the dead, Christ is the first fruits of the one great resurrection harvest that will climax at the end of this age. Just as the first fruits offering in the Old Testament represented the whole harvest to follow behind, so Jesus' resurrection as firstborn from among the dead is a representative resurrection, a resurrection that renders certain, necessary, and future the resurrection of those who fall asleep in him. First, Christ, and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ. One great resurrection harvest led by the firstborn, the firstfruits, Jesus. And Paul expresses this truth beautifully. In Romans 8, 29, where he says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. Here Paul accents the fact that Jesus, as the firstborn from the dead, is the first of many to be raised, the firstborn among many brothers. He is the preeminent one in his resurrection, yet at the same time the one who joins his people to himself. We are therefore called to see in Christ's resurrection as the firstborn from among the dead, the manifestation of the one great movement of God raising his people from the dead in Christ. Christ is the pioneer, the inaugurator of the resurrection harvest that necessarily includes all of his people and of those whom the Father has chosen, of those for whom Christ died, he will lose none of them but raise them on the last day. In his resurrection dawns the reality that shapes not only his identity, but the identity of those who are included in him by the Spirit and through Spirit-gifted faith. Christian identity is bound up with the eschatological, once-for-all event of Jesus' resurrection as firstborn from among the dead, the firstborn among many brothers, the first fruits of the one great resurrection harvest. Now to bring this full circle back to the great debate today, let me apply these governing Christological structures to Boltman. Remember, Boltman sought to demythologize the pre-existence of the Son, and this led him to demythologize the resurrection of the post-existent Son. Did you catch that when we did it? Boltman demythologized or ascribed mythology, pardon me, Boltman ascribed mythology to both the pre-existence 
and the post-existence of the Son. He said no one believes in a pre-existent Son. No one believes in a post-existent Son. That's the problem of New Testament mythology. He said, quote, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son, a pre-existent divine being who appears on earth as a man, dies the death of a sinner, makes atonement for sin, his resurrection marks the beginning of the cosmic catastrophe, and then says man's knowledge and mastery of the world is advanced to such an extent through science and technology that it's no longer possible for anyone seriously to hold a New Testament view of the world. In fact, no one in his right mind does. What I want you to appreciate is this. Once Boltman granted a mythological status to pre-existence. Once Boltman ascribed a mythological status to post-existence, I want you to see that he demythologized the fundamental structures that make for a history of special revelation. He demythologized the Christological categories that make possible the eschatology and teleology of history. He demythologized a pre-existent divine being. He demythologized a resurrected God-man. And just as Boltman rejected the objective history of bodily resurrection, so he rejected the objective truth of a pre-existent divine being. Here's what I want you to see. What you believe about pre-existence necessarily shapes and determines what you believe about post-existence. And the genius of Ritterboss and the brilliance of Van Til is that Van Til sets forth following Ritterboss, as we've seen, the pre-existence of the sun that shapes decisively the post-existence of the sun as the comprehensive Christological contours of a Reformed philosophy of history set directly over against modernist alternatives that do what? Demythologize pre- and post-existence and conceive an internalized view of history if it's Boltman. So Ritterboss and Van Til ingeniously, this is, this is the genius of their work, they ingeniously join organically the pre- and post-existence under those four points I made earlier. The Son of God exists prior to and apart from His works in time, and this is His eternal pre-existence. And listen, you need to hear this. That is not myth. It is not a, a, an ascription of existential anthropological categories expressed in myth. It is an objectively true revealed state of affairs, and it is the foundation to everything else we hold dear. Remember Ritterboss said, whatever Paul says about post-existence, no matter how central death and resurrection is in Paul's gospel theology, all of this is traced back to the fact that he affirms the Son of God in the pre-existent, pre-historical, supratemporal sense of the word in all of its full-orbed supernaturalism. It is not myth, and it does not need to be de demythologized because it is the architectonic starting point 
for the whole of the history of special revelation that culminates in the post-existence of the crucified and ascended Son of God. The post-existence of the Son expresses the significance of His pre-existence, and His pre-existence is rendered in terms borrowed from His post-existence. Boltman ingeniously recognizes that if you're going to deny the post-existence of the Son as objective historical fact, you must at the same time reject the pre-existence of the Son as objective historical truth, or as objective eternal truth. Both, then, for Boltman, expect, uh, express myths which do not tell us about the Son. In fact, let me say what's most pernicious about Boltman. What's most pernicious and um, unsettling about his theology. I'm going to put it very directly. Image of invisible God does not say a word about you as a human being. Does not say a word about your existential predicament. It's not about you. Secondly, firstborn over all creation does not say a word directly about you. It is about the Son of God. Post-existence, resurrection and ascension, first and foremost, simpliciter, does not say a word about anthropology or your existential predicament. Listen, it talks about the being and the works and the glory and the resurrection and the kingdom and the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. They're not objectifications about our existential condition. The scriptures are about the glory of God, not man, from beginning to end. So Ritterboss and Bavink and Van Til are setting forth, and I hope you can see this, a beautifully coherent, comprehensive Christological alternative to the program of demythologization, and you have to choose between these two options. One is the way of life and light and truth. The other is the way of death and darkness and error. Boltman's view is not Christian. That's Van Til's point that he made at the very beginning of the great debate today. He's saying, this is the greatest question we can ask. And there are those, such as Boltman, others like Bart, who are in the church denying the glory of this biblical presentation in its full-orb, supernatural, revelatory, Christ-centered glory. So to come full circle, this rich Christology from Ritterboss is applied to the demythologized Christ of Boltman is what Van Til has in mind when he says in the preface, this Christ is not the Christ of modern theology and of the modern church. The Christ who alone is the Lord of life is the Christ of the Reformers, of Augustine, and of the Scripture. To present the voice of this Christ as the Lord of life in the valley of death, 
as opposed to the Christ of modernism and neo-orthodoxy, is the purpose of this little book. These reflections from the great debate today enable us to see quite clearly that Van Til set the work of Voss and Ritterboss over against all forms of modern, modernist or neo-modernist Christology, Schleiermacher, Bart, Boltman, to name only three, and stressed the antithetical philosophies of histories, divergent conceptions of eschatology, and distinct notions of the person and work of Christ that are incompatible and antithetical with one another. This often neglected gem of a work showcases Van Til as fully conversant with and dependent on not only Voss and Ritterboss, but on the departures from biblical creedal and reformed orthodoxy that marked the sharp decline into heterodoxy and heresy in the 20th and now 21st centuries. And I commend it to you for sustained and prolonged reflection and study as we serve the pre-existent and post-existent, firstborn over all creation, firstborn from the dead, Christ, the Lord and head of the church and the beginning of the new creation.